asking us to our destination. So divorce rates are what they are, but I, I'm sad. It's, it's sad when Megan and I have been places, and we've been married 15 years now, and people are like, that's a long marriage, right? I mean, you have these conversations, and uh, I, I'm not wowed by that. As What wows me is like a couple weeks ago when I'm with the McNortons and celebrating their uh, dad, and Wayne and Bonnie, if, if Wayne would have lived to this summer, 70 years of marriage. Now, that, I'm, that wows me. But what is it about our, our culture? What, what wows you when it comes to a number of, of health and length of, of marital union? I've shared with you before that fewer and fewer people have a financial plan of any kind. That's what blows me away. I do premarital counseling, and one of the assignments I have couples do is to come up with a budget. And I don't ever look at the budget. They bring it in, and I just ask questions about it to make sure they're going to make it. And ask them, like, have you thought about Christmas? Is Christmas in your budget? It happens every year, December 25th, believe it or not. And uh, if, if you plan for it every month, it makes it more enjoyable when December rolls around. If you got cash in an envelope or in an account somewhere, it's, it's amazing. But so many people don't have a plan. But here's the other challenge. Many people get a plan, but you got Amazon Prime. And Amazon Prime, half the stuff you're putting in your car isn't part of your plan. Ask me how I know. And so you get to the end of the month, and you have discussions with your bride, and you're going, well, we had a plan, but that's not what we executed. What went wrong? So you got to get a plan that works, and you got to work the working plan, or it doesn't work. And, and so all of these things, we are just distracted as a people, and so we're going to derail somewhere in some of these areas. Our calendars are full. And we're constantly in the state of booking and rebooking ourselves because of the reality that we've double booked ourselves. We have meetings that could have been resolved in an email and emails that should have been resolved in meetings, right? We've served um, in a meeting and, and both of those problems hurt us time-wise because we give ourselves to them in the wrong arena. Our faith the average church attender in North America attends worship 1.7 times a month. Okay, um, And I'm not going to say, hey, go look at your church attendance, because this should include church, because this is where we get on the same page. But this is not this. They're two different things, okay? Um, this sometimes is an indicator of this, but not always. There are some people that they think that this is this, and really they've dated the church and they haven't dated the Messiah. Are you with me? And so this is a, a challenge for us. But that being said, I struggle to find people that are never doing this to not being distracted and kept away from this out there because this is like one of the only places where we're encouraged to look at this. And so if, if we're, and it's funny because we record these and my mom is going to be calling me this next week and saying, what is this that you keep talking about? Because she doesn't get to see my hands wave. And so mom, all I'm doing is, is uh, orchestrating some band somewhere. It's really good. Um, I promise. She's like the only one that listens. It's funny because every week I don't get one up. She's, she's like, he didn't get it up this week. I'm like, I love you. Oh, Wow. <laughs> Uh, did I talk about distractions? <laughs> in a marathon, when people are wearing out, right? They bonk. We've talked about hitting that wall. 
In those moments, we become distractible when we're weak, when we're tired, when we're thirsty, when we're hungry. If we're not focused, it's easy to lose our focus. As we discussed last week, we want to finish well. And James gives us more insight today when he teaches us that we need to manage distractions in order to finish well. If we don't manage distractions, we're going to be derailed. Even in this, maybe even especially in this, because we're going to have more temptation away from this than any other area of our life. He may use one of those other areas that we discussed to distract us from this, or every one of those other areas to distract us from this. But the enemy is still living, and the enemy does not want us to have a healthy relationship with God. Therefore, we need to learn to manage these distractions to finish well. We're going to begin reading in James chapter 5. We're going to study the first 12 verses, but consider as we read these 12 verses two ways to manage distractions in order to finish well in life. Let's look at those first six verses. James encourages us, Come now, you rich people, weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corruption, excuse me, their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've stored up treasure in the last days. Look, the pay that you withheld from the workers who mowed your fields cries out. And the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and have indulged yourselves. You've fattened your hearts. Notice that statement there. You fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned, you have murdered the righteous who does not resist you. And so, James, we've got to slow this down in order to look at the first way to manage distraction, and that is to identify and begin to eliminate those distractions. This is the second time that James says, come now. Uh, Last week's message started with that same phrase, if you look back in chapter uh, 4, verse 13, where he says, come now, who you say today or tomorrow. Here again, he's saying, come now, and he's trying to draw us in so that we will listen up to another insightful thing. And here he's telling us we've got some distractions that we need to identify and eliminate. It appears at first glance that James is calling out uh, what it is to be wealthy. And we know from the scope of scriptures that God desires us to have, right? God wants us to have and to have enough. God's goal is not poverty for his people. It's amazing. People will preach this text and say, see, God wants everybody to be poor. Um, And and that's the the way to live. No, what what James is telling us is that when our budget affects this, if our finances affect this, if we are trusting in anything else other than our relationship with God, then our relationship with God is going to suffer, and we're going to be living for that. And and James points that out here. Notice how he does it. God does not want our focus to be on our wealth or on our lack of it. Both can be distractions. Okay, this is what he's saying in our text. James elaborates on the wealthy that have miseries coming on them. Look at verse one again. Come now, you rich people, weep and wail. What are they wailing over? What are they crying over? They're crying over the miseries that are coming on them. What miseries are coming on them? These are the miseries. Wealth rots. 
There is nothing that we can purchase on this earth that goes on forever. How many times have you heard a a pastor or somebody say, you're not going to get to take a U-Haul to the grave, right? I mean, the reality is things of this life do not last for eternity because it's real. These things on earth are going to be moth-eaten. They're going to be destroyed. And over time, that's what happens when our focus is on building kingdoms on this earth. Notice that goes on in verses 2 and 3, talking about the depth of the wealth that is rotting. Verse 4, talking about workers that we abused in order to get rich. We all know people that have used people to get rich. Uh, I talked with somebody this last week about the the anthill. The anthill gets really big, but why is it really big? It gets really big because it's built on the carcasses of those who've, who've helped build it. And sometimes we think, wow, I've got this big kingdom on earth. And and it came at a high cost that somebody else paid for for the benefit of others. And those workers are going to cry out and God is going to hear their cry. Notice in verse 5, he talks about the fact that we have fattened ourselves like the fattened calf. What do we do with the fattened calf? We kill and eat when we're celebrating something good, right? But, but notice, there's a key word that James puts in here so that we know he's not just talking about earthly things. He's talking about an eternal relationship. He throws the word heart in there, and we're going to see it thrown in there again in the second half of our uh, message today. We not only have fattened ourselves, we have fattened our hearts, our desires. We've given into ourselves in such a way that the things we want, man, we've lusted over them to, to a degree that we've indulged them, that man, our heart is going to burst because we have fallen in love with this world at the expense of a love relationship with God. And it's causing problems. In James tells us, uh, he goes on in verse 6, we have condemned, we've murdered the righteous. Because now we are such, so, so big and so full of ourselves that if anybody gets in our way, we're going to get them out of the way or we're going to run them over. Just move. I mean, people all the time, if, if I've had anything happen to me in ministry more and more again, people who tell me what the Bible should say. Instead of asking me, hey, Holcomb, what does the Bible say? God doesn't win anymore in our culture. We keep coming to God and saying, hey, God, can you change your mind? Can you make it more like uh, my plan? <laughs> you know, because I'm all legit or something. And, and we can just string him along and say, come on, dude, just change your mind and everything will be all right. And he wants us to change our hearts so that he can somehow get into our minds so that we can change our living because we will not do better until we know better. And the reality is none of these things, notice all of these things that are mentioned, go back to verse 1, underline it. He says to weep and wail over these miseries. These are miseries. We are not happy when this is happening. There are more wealthy people that are unhappy than poor people that are unhappy. Why is that? Because the emphasis is on what I have to manage. It's on my earthly kingdom, and we lose focus of the things that matter, relationships, family, other things. We've put so much into that, it's miserable. Not only that, we've burned bridges. we got people that hate us. They're crying out to God on our behalf, and they're not praying, hey, God, bless them, right? 
They're saying, hey, God, thump them in the skull. Wake them up. They hurt me. And God hears their cries. He's saying, be miserable over that. Not only that, but we've indulged ourselves so much that we're on the verge of letting these things we've indulged ourselves in with take us to the slaughterhouse. These are the things that are going to be our end. And it shouldn't be that way. And James tells us we need to be better at mourning. If you looked at the, the Beatitudes that Jesus preached in Matthew chapter 5, the first Beatitude is blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The second Beatitude is blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Well, what are we mourning? So many people uh, just think, well, you know, it's, it's about going to the graveside with my loved one. No, he's talking about mourning our spiritual poverty that he talked about in the first Beatitude. It is our spiritual poorness that qualifies us for the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the spiritually poor. They're the ones who get the kingdom of heaven because it's not based on our deservedness. It's based on Christ's goodness. But it doesn't mean that we should go around praying and, Woo, you see how much he forgave in me? <laughs> what a good God. I'm going to give him a little more to forgive. You just watch me work. You know, I mean, that's kind of how we enjoy this relationship with God. I think I touched on it last week as though Christ's uh, mercy or grace can increase because of our sinfulness. It can't. The only way it increases is with our ability to share his grace with others so that they can get into this relationship and what restores them. We need to be better at mourning that sinfulness in our lives. Um, going on to elaborate a little more about the, the condemned, murdered, and righteous in verse 6, I want to read verses 9 through 11 with you in James chapter 5. Let's jump down. We're going to skip 7 and 8 for now. We're going to come back to them and read with me verses 9 through 11. Brothers and sisters, do not complain about one another so that you will not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. Brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name as an example of suffering and patience. See, we count as blessed those who have endured. You have heard of Job's endurance and have seen the outcome that the Lord brought about. And the Lord is compassionate and merciful. If you haven't read the book of Job, I encourage you to do so, um, at least the first four chapters. Um, you'll want to read more if you read that far, and I invite you to read all 50, 50 51 chapters of Job. Um, and especially you're going to want to read the end if you get nothing else out of it. But this is the reality. Job was asked, or the devil asked God if he could test Job. And God says, yeah, you just can't take his life, essentially. And so he takes everything else, um, except for his wife, because he knew he had his wife where he wanted her, and you'll read that in the story. But at the end, Job undergoes all this testing. If there's anybody that has a right to be upset with God, it's Job. But instead, over and over, Job blesses God, and at the end of his life, God blesses Job. And it's a phenomenal thing, because this was Job's priority. And though it cost him a lot as he walked this fear, we need to know that we are going to uh, be hurt in this world. In this world, Jesus promised we are going to have suffering and trouble, but we can take heart. He's overcome this world, and the best is yet to come. I'm going to go back to James chapter 4, verse 8, to remind us that this still applies even in chapter 5 and even in our lives today. 
We mourn this stuff. Why? This is the elimination piece. Not only do we identify it, but we should be sick of it and get rid of it because James has already said we need to cleanse our hands because we're sinners and purify our hearts. We are double-minded. Whether it's wealth, abuse in relationships, overconsumption of good things, condemnation of other people, all of these things can become distractions and we need to eliminate every one of them. Let's look at the second way after we read verses 7 and 8 and verse 12 to catch those three verses we've not read yet. Are you with me? You doing all right out there? I love you. Verses 7 and 8. Therefore, therefore what? Therefore, because we've learned to identify and eliminate these things because they're, we've wept over them, we've cried over them because we recognize what they're costing us. Therefore, brothers and sisters... Be patient until the Lord's coming. We're going to get an A, B, A format here. A, be patient until the Lord's coming. B is we're going to get a cute little example. Thank you, James. Here's the example. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains? You also must, here's the other A, You also must be patient. Underline this phrase. Strengthen your hearts. Ah, James, you're opening our eyes here. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. Let's jump to verse 12. Above all, when I hear phrases like that, I take notice. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes mean yes and your no mean no so that you won't fall under judgment. The second way to manage distractions is to patiently endure to the end. Patiently endure to the end. The biggest theme of the distractions in verses 1 to 6 and 9 through 11 is that our heart, very literally in verse 5, has been fattened and bent towards the wrong ends because of the evil desires that we have. When our end goals become building our own kingdoms on earth, we miss the greater goal. At the beginning of verse 7 and at the end of verse 8, again the ABA format, we're reminded to be patient as we wait for the coming of the Lord. Because when the king comes back, his kingdom will be established forever. The scriptures are clear on that. The right end goal is gaining admission into his kingdom. And it's worth giving up this one to get that one. This isn't something, though, that we rush. I find this all the time where we're even knowing that Jesus is coming back. We want to just speed people along. And, and because we're not really into making disciples of Jesus, we're just trying to get the decisions out of them. As though, man, if I can just get you to believe that Jesus saved your soul, I, I don't have to teach anything else after that point. I can just get a yes out of you and, and say, sweet, now you've got the big piece of grace so that you can keep on sinning and hope for more grace. That's not what God ever asked or required of us. Uh, matter of fact, he rejects it like in Romans chapter 6. But even so, here we are. In this case, he says we need to strengthen our hearts and we do this as we learn to wait patiently just like a farmer notice the farmer is the farmer typically fruitful they're a good farmer right (laughs) if they put their seed in the soil at the right time and most farmers they have a great bit, bit of faith don't they 
Now they're trusting the Lord to water it early and water it late. But even in a bad year, there usually is a yield. It's just not a great yield. But notice that. What do we read in the first six verses? We go, oh, some people preach God doesn't want us to have. No, the farmer, when we read this story, he's fruitful. He gets his fruit. But he's learned to be patient for it. I love uh, the statement, getting rich should be done slowly. (laughs) Get get rich slow, because if we're getting rich fast, we're probably cutting corners and hurting people along the way. And we're not going to know how to manage it. So find a way to get rich slowly because we've managed our budget and have prepared for our future in such a way that we have wealth at the end. In the same way that the farmer has thought about when he gets his harvest, he can't eat everything or he has nothing to put into the field come the spring. And so it is we have to be diligent in managing our distractions so that the things that we are focused on are the things that we need to be focused on. Rushing wealth and rushing relationships sounds a lot like survival of the fittest. But I want to remind us, it's lonely at the top. It's real lonely at the top. And we can rush and and hope for all of those things. I would beckon that perhaps the loneliest person in the United States of America might indeed be our president today. He's probably checked a lot of boxes for the things that he's wanted. And so when you pray for him, pray for relationships, pray for people in the back uh, quarter of his life that are going to model for him what's most important. Because we all need that, right? Every soul God cares about and, and died for, but it's lonely on the top. If we don't end, the second reality is we don't last long at the top. Um, I grew up across the street from an elementary school, Colorado Springs, Colorado, and I loved the fact that they, they put in a new parking lot for the teachers that was right across from my house, and we kind of went downhill, and the, the, when it would snow, the blade would, would come, and it would push all the snow to the far end of the parking lot at the bottom of the hill. So we played king of the hill every time it snowed. And you know, nobody lasted long at the top. That's who everybody's aiming their snowballs at, their shovels or their inner tubes or whatever things they have to throw at them, including themselves, to knock them off the top of the hill. Nobody lasts long on the top. College basketball, right? I mean, how many, they're talking about how much parity there is this year because nobody has lasted long except for Baylor did. Uh, at the top, there have been so many changes there. Above all, though, we need to finish what we start. We need to stand on our yes and stand on our no. As a parent, I've made a lot of mistakes, but one thing I do a fairly good job of is earning trust for my children by doing what I say I will do. (laughs) It's amazing. You don't have to be a rocket scientist, but when you do what you say you're going to do, you earn trust with people, even if Saying what you're going to do is not something that's going to be pleasant for them. No, you're not going to get that toy. It's going to go in a toy timeout until tomorrow at such and such time. And when you wait till such and such time to give the toy back, it's amazing. The next time you threaten with it even, they know, okay, this guy might mean business. And there's trust that's earned there. 
whether it's dis- discipline and requiring a time in or a toy time out, or talking through natural consequences or coming through with the promises of celebration for the good that's been done. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. We'd be better served to work through seasons of figurative scorching summer and freezing winters with our employers and our employees if there's no abuse going on, right? If we have a healthy relationship there, morality would rise, crime would fall, economy would skyrocket, and evangelism would flourish if we valued marriage and family like God does. Learning to be people that kept our vows, our yes being yes and our no being no. If we had a healthy budget that was within our means, with the ability to pay our bills, to save for tomorrow, and to give generously, and if we stuck to that kind of a plan, our present, our future, and the greater community that we live among would be blessed by our fruitful disciplines. Is that new information? Anybody know? It's, it's rocket science. But if we can let our yes be yes and our no be no, even in our budgets, these are our boundaries that we've set. We're not going to cross these things. Patient, excuse me, if we prioritized our calendars instead of flippantly being run through the mill, we would be healthier in so many areas of our life, including emotional health. Patient endurance is a special trait that God modeled. Getting rich slow is the only lasting means to wealth. Enjoying friendships slowly and thoroughly is key to lasting marriages. Saying no to things that are not highly important to us enables us to say yes to things that are. I've shared with you the the proverb I learned in Tanzania in Swahili. They would tell us Westerners, haraka, haraka, hyena, baraka. If you hurry and hurry, there are no blessings. Friends, Jesus is going to come again. I trust him. He told me he would, and everything else he said he did. (laughs) It's the one promise that he hasn't fulfilled yet. He's coming. And when he does, his kingdom will be consummated when the followers of Jesus Christ gather around the throne and worship him rightfully. I want to be counted in that number, and I want you to be there with me. The enemy has been sending distractions, though, with false promises of happiness, health, or wealth derived by some quick scheme to get any and all of these things. But the finish line focus that James has been hinting about this entire letter is tied to having a bigger picture focus one that keeps Jesus square in the lens, one where we understand eternity with him is the finish that we've all been hoping for and should be running towards. With that in mind, how's your racing? It's 2020, right? We're, we're just, what, nine weeks into a new year? How's your racing? Perhaps that's our problem. We've been racing. We've been running hard for too long. We have been hitting the reins and it's catching up to us. Do you want a better finish? Bottom line today is this, let patient endurance restore kingdom focus until the king returns. Let patient endurance 
Some of us need to take a breath and slow down. We need to say no to some, some good things even so we can say yes to greater things. Some of us need to get a kingdom focus or to restore our kingdom focus. And one thing that I think the North American church has failed to do well, and I apologize that we don't do it better, is to remind us that the king is coming again. Jesus will return. The deck is stacked. It could be any time. We need to be ready. But for him, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. So I want to be ready every day, and I want to ready as many people as I can every day, slowly and patiently, with endurance, riding this until he returns. If we do that, our finish will be better, maybe even up into forever. Do you have a song you want to close us in? And uh, you'll go ahead and make your way. I'll pray for us. And uh, we'll close in a song today. Thank you for your patient endurance with all my distractions, especially early in that message. Father, you show us how good you are over and over again. And we thank you for your love and how consistent it is. We thank you that we can count on you. And God, we admit and acknowledge that we have let ourselves become distracted by so many things. Things that we let uh, come in the way of our relationships, that come in the way of our budgets, that come in the way of our families, that come in the way of our coworkers, that come in the way of your people and your kingdom, even on earth. And so again, teach us to not only pray, but to model and live what it means for your kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. And also, don't let us be distracted, Father. Keep reminding us of your return so that we know that uh, there is a little bit of urgency. There is a, a piece of hopefulness even that this isn't the end, that the kingdoms that we establish here that lead to miseries aren't the only things that we have to hope for. And we thank you that you've already accomplished the greatest things by defeating the two great enemies of sin when you died for us and death itself when you rose victorious from the grave, consummating our hope when you return. In Jesus we pray.